Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another week of SCOTUS 101. We're still reeling from the Dobbs leak, but the court continues to go about its business. GC, do we have any new grants since our last episode? Yes, we do. There were two, Jones versus Hendricks and SEC versus Cochran. Now, for Hendricks, imagine that you've been convicted of a crime, but you don't think that your conduct is covered by the relevant law. Normally, what you do in that circumstance is challenge that law in court. But in this case, the law of the circuit was clearly against the defendants, so they didn't bother to do that. Later, however, the Supreme Court overruled the lower court precedent and made its decision retroactive. So the question in Hendricks is, because the defendants didn't challenge the law in the first place, have they waived the challenge? Are they just out of luck? That's what the court will decide. And in SEC versus Cochran, the court is essentially being asked to decide whether federal district courts have the power to consider constitutional challenges to the SEC's administrative proceedings. The court also delivered two opinions this week. GC, do you mind telling us about the first one? Not at all. This was Patel versus Garland. It was a 5-4 opinion by Justice Barrett, joined by the Chief Justices and Justices Thomas, Alito, and Kavanaugh and uh, held that the federal courts lack jurisdiction to review facts found by an immigration judge in discretionary relief proceedings. In this case, Patel and his wife entered the United States illegally in the 1990s. Then they applied to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service for an adjustment of status to excuse their illegal entry and to make them lawful permanent residents. While that petition was pending, Patel applied for a Georgia's driver's license and falsely checked the box saying that he was a U.S. citizen. Because of this, Patel's application was denied, but he claimed that he had checked the citizen box by accident and didn't have any subjective intent to violate the law. When removal proceedings were initiated against him and his wife, both an immigration judge and the Board of Immigration Appeals ruled against Patel on this factual question, saying essentially they didn't believe him. When Patel appealed to the 11th Circuit, the court held that it had no jurisdiction over his factual claim due to an immigration provision that prohibits judicial review of, quote, any judgment regarding the granting of relief in such an immigration proceeding with the exception of constitutional claims or questions of law. The Supreme Court agreed with the 11th Circuit and found that Congress did not preserve questions of fact for appellate review. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, dissented, arguing that the relevant statutory provisions would not deny courts the ability to rectify a factual error. Next is FEC versus Cruz. This case was argued by our friend Chuck Cooper over at Cooper & Kirk, who, as some of our listeners may remember, was on the show earlier this year. In a 6-3 decision by the Chief Justice, which was joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, the court held that Senator Ted Cruz and his campaign committee had standing to challenge the constitutionality of Section 304 of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, more commonly known as BICRA. The court also held that this provision's prohibition on campaigns using more than $250,000 of funds raised after Election Day to repay a candidate's personal loans violates the First Amendment. Chief Justice Roberts made clear that the First Amendment, quote, 
has its fullest and most urgent application to campaigns for political office, and he added that the court has recognized only one permissible ground for restricting political speech, which is the prevention of quid pro quo corruption or its appearance. And here, Chief Justice Roberts said, the government could not show that this provision combats that type of corruption or even combats the appearance of that type of corruption. Now, Justice Kagan, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, disagreed, and she filed a dissenting opinion saying that in discarding the statute, the court fuels non-public serving, self-interested governance. It injures the integrity, both actual and apparent, of the political process. Next up, we have our interview for this week. We're pleased to be joined today by Justice Nels Peterson of the Georgia Supreme Court. Justice Peterson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. Now, before we dive into your legal career, I have a question I generally like to ask folks. Did you always want to be a lawyer uh, when you were growing up? So I don't know about always, but uh, I, I was homeschooled growing up, kindergarten through 12th grade, and we had lots and lots of of public policy and law-related conversations around the dinner table. Um, and I, I did a fair bit of debating and eventually realized that the only marketable skills I had were probably somewhere in the legal arena. <laughs> no, absolutely. Now, I know after undergrad, you attended Harvard Law School, where you were the executive editor of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, executive vice president of the Federalist Society, and a finalist in the Ames Moot Court Competition. Could you tell us a little bit about those experiences and what your overall law school experience was like? So I loved law school, made a ton of friends who are still good friends to this day, and most significantly met my wife, Jennifer, who was a couple years behind me. Um, and so regardless of anything that happened in classes or exams, law school, I am contractually obligated <laughs> uh, to classify law school as a terrific experience. Well, it sounds like a, a success, definitely. Uh, on that front. Are there any particular memories other than meeting your wife uh, from law school that stand out to you? Oh my goodness. There are, there are many. Um, I, I will say when, when we did the, the moot court competition, which is sort of the, the big Harvard competition each year, um, the Federalist Society got a little carried away and made a ton of signs and masks with my face. <laughs> and so imagine about a hundred people all with like a mask or signs with my face on them. My dad comes up from Atlanta for the, the thing, walks into the building and sees that scene. Um, <laughs> the look I got was, was really priceless. Now, are there any pictures of that scene uh, floating around anywhere? Uh, not that I am willing to share. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, now, after law school, I know you clerked for uh, a good friend of the show, Chief Justice or Chief Judge Bill Pryor of the Eleventh Circuit. Uh, what was that experience like clerking uh, for Judge Pryor? Oh, it was terrific. I was in his first class of of law clerks. Uh, my wife was in his third class of law clerks, and he officiated our wedding. Hmm. So he's been a, a dear friend for for a long time, uh, a real mentor. Um, and just uh, a, a great person to pattern one's career after. Excellent. Now, I know you were in your the first class of his clerks, uh, but did Judge Pryor have any traditions he was trying to establish with his clerks at that time? Are there any 
traditions uh, that you maintain as part of the prior clerk family now? So I, I think over time, the traditions have become healthier. But but that first year, <laughs> our key tradition was every Monday, we would go to barbecue at Full Moon Barbecue in Birmingham, Alabama. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, well, that sounds like a fantastic uh, tradition. <laughs> I, I think me. over time, running has sort of replaced the, uh, maybe mm. not replaced, but at least supplemented the barbecue. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, the barbecue sounds great. Uh, the running, I don't know about it, that. Indeed. <laughs> uh, now, after you clerked for Judge Pryor, uh, I know you moved into private practice at King and Spalding in Atlanta. What was that experience like moving into private practice? So it was great. Uh, I had a terrific time, uh, worked with a bunch of great people. I focused principally on securities fraud litigation, corporate governance related litigation, um, merger related litigation. Uh, and, and really kind of dove deep into that area of practice, did some pro bono appellate work on the side. Um, but, uh, really learned a lot, was not looking to leave. Um, it was, it was a great place and I enjoyed the folks that I worked with. Well, I know you did eventually leave and you moved into public service working as governor Sonny Purdue's chief legal advisor. Uh, what made you want to make that jump from King and Spalding to public service? Well, I'd always been interested in public service, always been interested in sort of government. Uh, and uh, a friend of mine uh, who uh, he had clerked for a, another judge on the 11th Circuit when I was with Judge Pryor, uh, a friend of mine who had was in the governor's office reached out when there was the vacancy in the, the legal shop uh, and encouraged me to uh, apply. It was a great job. There is no better way to learn about your state in your state government than to work in a governor's office. Um, I will say though, you know, at a firm like King and Spalding, you get very deep in a very specialized area of law. Being chief counsel to a governor is the complete opposite. <laughs> you have to know something about everything. And I still remember the first meeting I was in with the governor, probably a day or two after I started on the job, and I'm listening to the back and forth between the policy advisors and the governor and the, the person from outside who is pitching something. And the governor looks at me and says, Nels, can we do this? And I realize all of a sudden, I'm expected to know the answer to that question, and they're <laughs> going to act <laughs> based on it. I learned very quickly how to say, you know, governor, I'm not sure, but if you give me a few minutes, I'll look it up. Uh, that sounds like a very important uh, skill set <laughs> yes. to develop. Uh, are there any other special memories from your time serving as uh, Governor Purdue's chief legal advisor? Oh, there were so many. Um, uh, most of the really good stories are uh, unfortunately privileged, though, so I'll, mm. I'll plead, uh, plead privilege. Uh, understandable, understandable. Uh, now, after you left uh, Governor Purdue's office, uh, when his term ended, you moved over to the AG's office in 2012. Uh, how did that move come about? So... Um, Governor Purdue was term limited. I, I knew it was going to be time to move on. Um, and uh, there was a new attorney general elected uh, who I had gotten to know through some of my work um, with the governor's office on water rights issues involving Alabama and Florida. Mm. Um, and he reached out to me and asked if, if I would like to come over and work with him. Uh, and I thought about it and I essentially said, you know, Georgia doesn't have a solicitor general, sort of a chief appellate lawyer uh, for the state, which most states do, patterned after the federal model. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I think based on a number of the cases that I worked on when I was in the governor's office, Georgia really needs one. I will come work for you if, you know, at some point after I get there, you create that office and I be that person. Uh, and so he, he agreed to that. And so I went over and started with him, although uh, uncharacteristically for Georgia, on the first day of the job in January, there was a giant ice storm and I was iced into my uh, driveway for the first three days. Oh, of the no. New job. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, what was it like uh, setting up a new solicitor's general office in the state? So it was really interesting. Um, something like 44 or 45 other states had already had a position like that. Um, and just for a second, the reason these, these sorts of positions are important, when the state uh, takes a case through the appellate system, it is, you are making precedent for your entire state, uh, if it's a criminal case for every DA's office, etc. But also, if you're in the federal system, you're making precedent for the other states in your federal circuit. Hmm. And in the event you go to the U.S. Supreme Court, you're making precedent for the entire country. And so it is really important to be strategic about your appellate litigation. And without some centralized coordinating function for your appellate litigation, it, it's really more a function of what the line lawyer who's handling the case wants to do or what the state agency client wants to do. Hmm. And often the state, the particular state agency that may be in the client in that case is not as interested in the bigger picture. Um, hmm. And so that's why we created the position. Anytime you create a new position that takes responsibilities from other people, there's always, you know, some amount of friction. Sure. Um, and, and I tried to, to be very sensitive to that. And, and part of that was a function of, you know, not implying that any of the lawyers who'd been doing the work very well for a long time were incapable um, or that they should stop doing it. But just to, to ensure that there was a coordinating function, that there was sort of a a bigger picture that could be brought to bear. Um, and I think over time it, it was appreciated and it's, it's become, I think we're now on our fifth at this point and it's become a very successful, a very successful office. Excellent. Now, since you were the first solicitor general in the state, did you have an opportunity to argue any cases before the U S Supreme court? So I did not. We only had one case during the, the three years that I was SG that went to uh, the court and a longtime attorney general's office lawyer who had gone out to private practice but kept the case and is now a federal judge uh, was had been set to argue that case for a long time. And one of the things about ensuring that you limit friction and, mm -hmm. and keep up morale is uh, not take a case for argument unless you really need to. Um, and he handled the case very well. So he, he got to do that one. Um, mm. I, I did, I did uh, get to do some Supreme Court litigation. We also had a, an original jurisdiction case uh, between us and Florida while I was there that Florida filed over water rights shortly before I left the office. And so um, the, the Constitution provides original jurisdiction in the United States Supreme Court between for disputes between states, but notwithstanding our long history, there's there's been very few. Ours was mm. number 142. Wow, um, which was kind of cool to to get to be involved with. Excellent, excellent, very interesting. 
Now, what made you decide to eventually leave the SG's uh, position? So it's a it's a job that is incredibly busy and hard work and high stress all the time, um, and it really just has a it has kind of an inherent built-in life cycle on it. Uh, it's not the sort of thing you can do indefinitely. Now, I know after you left the office, uh, you served in uh, a capacity with the state university system there in Georgia before being appointed to the bench. Uh, right. How did your appointment to the bench come about? Well, in in my work, um, there there was a the intermediate appellate court, the Georgia Court of Appeals, uh, has grown over time as the uh, as the population of the state has grown, uh, as the federal circuits uh, do from time to time. And there was uh, a new three judge panel of that court that was legislatively uh, adopted and approved and funded, uh, and so there were three seats on the Court of Appeals open for. Uh, gubernatorial appointment simultaneously, and the governor's office reached out to me and and inquired if I was interested. Mm. Um, and when that happens, you often are, as it right. turns out. Right. Well, and then I know you were obviously elevated to the Georgia Supreme Court. How did that come about? So it was actually a similar approach. Uh, about a year later, the state constitution had for a long time authorized nine justices on the court. Uh, but the legislature had only funded seven uh, for quite some time. And Georgia has a, an odd history with its Supreme Court. We were the last of the original colonies to get a Supreme Court. Um, oh, wow. The first 70 years of our state, we did not have a Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. And, and so um, Governor Nathan Deal uh, was himself a lawyer. His son was a judge, and he really had – I love Governor Purdue. He was terrific, and he was terrific to work for. Um, but he and the judiciary often had a, a more combative relationship. Governor Deal uh, was more interested in trying to fund it and ensure it had all the resources that it needed. And uh, and so when he proposed expanding the court to nine, um, it happened. And so there were two seats uh, that came open, um, and I was fortunate enough to – to get one of them. Excellent. Now, are there any traditions that you're trying to establish or have established with your law clerks? Uh, so we have, um, we have two permanent law clerks, uh, and then we have one who's, you know, more like the federal system where it's recent grads who cycle mm -hmm. through. Uh, we're very food oriented. So going out and <laughs> trying new restaurants or restaurants that are new to us, especially taco places, uh, is very high on our list of traditions. Excellent. Excellent. I fully support that tradition as well as the barbecue <laughs> tradition. Uh, I wanted to shift gears a little bit, if we could, Justice Peterson, and talk about a couple of substantive issues. Uh, for instance, one topic I know that you've talked about before is how to apply originalism when interpreting state constitutions. Could you tell us a little bit uh, about that and give us a little bit of background on that topic? Of course. Uh, so by originalism, we mean interpreting legal text according to the meaning that it had at the time that it was adopted. Um, so, so that's the original part. The, the phrase that most originalists use these days is original public meaning, mm -hmm. which, which really means the meaning, the original meaning that is publicly available. It does not depend on any legislator's subjective intent with what they were trying to do. 
Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's the original meaning that any member of the public would have understood just sitting on their couch watching ESPN. It's the original discoverable meaning. Uh, and you have to look at context and history sometimes to, to determine what a particular legal text meant at the time that was it was adopted. That's the way, you know, Justice Kagan famously said, we're all originalists now. That's the way that the U.S. Supreme Court generally interprets the Constitution. And, you know, m many critics of originalism think it was some sort of new idea that originated in the 1980s with U.S. Attorney General Ed Meese and Justice Antonin Scalia. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not true. Originalism is much older than that. They, they simply brought a revival of it. But on the state level, it's, it has, you know, sort of a, a, a very lengthy pedigree. Um, and in, that's true in many, many states. In fact, a decision from 1944 of my court said a provision of the Constitution is to be construed in the sense in which it was understood by the framers and the people at the time of its adoption, about as clear a statement um, of originalism as you can get. And then you go back 100 years to 1854, 90 years, I guess, Mm -hmm. says the Constitution, like every other instrument made by men, is to be construed in the sense in which it was understood by the makers of it at the time when they made it. To deny this is to insist that a fraud shall be perpetrated. Mm. And, and so originalism has a very lengthy history within the American legal system. When we talk about originalism for the federal Constitution, which is how that phrase most often gets used, right. There's, there, it can be a very difficult thing. It's, it's a real question of history. Um, but we know what history you're looking at. For the Constitution, you're looking at uh, the late 1870s, uh, mm -hmm. around the time of the, the adoption of the Constitution. Um, for amendments, you're looking at the time of the adoption of the amendment. And for purposes of incorporating the Bill of Rights against the states, uh, you're looking at 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted. When it comes to states, though, most states have had multiple constitutions. Right. And so when you think about that, it really raises some interpretive methodological questions that just never arise in the federal system. And, and Georgia's a, a, a fairly stream example of that. We've had 10. Mm. Um, and our most recent constitution was adopted in 1983. Um, in fact, I've worked with a guy in a, at the AG's office who had hanging on his wall a certificate from Governor George Busby from 1982 saying, congratulations, Joe, for being a framer of the Georgia Constitution. <laughs> it's like working down the hall from, from you know, James Madison. Um, so obviously when we're construing the 1983 Constitution, the question is, what is the original public meaning of the 1983 Constitution in 1983? Right. But that question becomes complicated by the fact that many of the most important provisions in our 1983 Constitution first appeared several constitutions ago and were just carried forward. And many other states have similar setups. And so over time, we've had to develop principles for what we do with a provision that first appeared in, say, 1877 and then was carried forward verbatim, you know, in the Constitution of 1945, in the Constitution of 1976, and then into 1983. Right. And so right. over time, we've developed uh, basically four principles. Um, and the first principle is the logic of originalism is 
words, the meaning of words in a legal instrument don't change over time. They mean today what they meant on day one. Well, if the, if the 1877 Constitution ran from 1877 to 1944, the meaning in 1944 of a provision that came in in 1877 is whatever it meant in 1877. Well, then if you carry that forward into the 45 Constitution, it means in 1945 what it meant in 1944. Because the best evidence of the meaning of constitutional language um, is, is what that previous constitution meant. Um, and then it means at the end of the 45 constitution what it meant at the beginning and, and so on through into the current day. And so that tells us, we sort of presume absent evidence to the contrary, that a provision that exists today means what it meant the first time it came into the constitution. We have a second presumption, though, that we apply that sometimes may point in a different direction, and that is it's a presumption of a consistent and definitive construction. And in, in other legal contexts, this may be known as the prior construction canon. Um, and basically the idea is a state Supreme Court's construction of a constitutional provision is, is binding and final. The state Supreme Court is the final authority on the meaning of its own state constitution which means the best evidence of the meaning of a provision is what a state Supreme Court has said that it meant consistently and definitively over a period of time. Um, which, when there has been a consistent and definitive construction of a provision, and then the framers and the people choose to carry that language forward into a new constitution, it's presumed to carry that meaning with it. What happens when Sort of this idea of original public meaning from day one may point to a different meaning than the meaning later given to it by the court and then carried forward into a new constitution is, is a question that uh, we have flagged but never really specifically uh, answered. Mm. And then there's a very important third point. Many state Supreme Courts interpret constitutional provisions with federal equivalents. Think free speech or freedom of religion or you know, a Second Amendment equivalent or a takings clause. Many state Supreme Courts basically say in shorthand, well, we're gonna presume this means the same thing as the federal constitution. The US Supreme Court has definitively construed this to mean X, so we're gonna say it means the same thing. Um, Judge Jeff Sutton of the Sixth Circuit has written a great book um, criticizing that approach and arguing for independent state interpretation, a book entitled uh, 51 Imperfect Solutions. Um, but, but we have addressed that by basically saying, look, we take, you know, obviously we, we obey the, the U.S. Supreme Court when it uh, rules regarding federal law, and we take very seriously um, and persuasively any, any decisions they have that would be relevant to state constitutional provisions, but they're not binding on us. And the extent to which, when we're trying to interpret our free speech clause or our due process clause, the extent to which we will find persuasive a decision of the federal Supreme Court depends on the extent to which their decision is based on text, history, and context of the federal text that mm. they're interpreting. Because we do original public meaning, 
a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court that does that is very instructive about the very similar original public meaning of our text. But on the other hand, if, if the, the U.S. Supreme Court just kind of makes something up, as courts are wont to do from time to time, right. we don't find that terribly meaningful in terms of our interpretation of the Georgia Constitution. Uh, and mm -hmm. so... A recent a decision from 2019 uh, applying that logic uh, led us to conclude that there was in fact no state equivalent of Miranda. Mm. Um, so uh, those are, are three key principles. The 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 fourth and and final is is common law related, and that essentially is, you know, if there is a constitutional right that guarantees a right that existed at common law, absent evidence to the contrary we're generally going to interpret the constitutional right consistent with the scope of the common law right. Well, that leads me into another question, Justice Peterson, and maybe this one's a little wonky, but you know, generally state courts, unlike federal courts, are courts of general jurisdiction, meaning they can hear a broad range of cases. And so one of the questions I've heard asked before, and I think you may have addressed it briefly with that fourth point, is what's the role of originalism or textualism in a system where common law might still play a role or where a court isn't necessarily bound in the same way that a, a federal court might be? So it's a great question. I think the extent to which state courts are unbound relative to their federal counterparts is, is less true than it is legislatively. You know, obviously, um, Article One of the Constitution grants Congress certain enumerated powers, and Congress doesn't have any powers that aren't granted to them. Mm -hmm. State legislatures, on the other hand, generally have all powers that are not implicitly prohibited to them. Right. Um, I, state courts, on the other hand, generally are vested with the judicial power, which judicial power inherently has limitations on it. But but there is a tradition in most states of of common law. You know, right. the the U.S. Supreme Court has famously said there is no federal common law. That's not really true, but there's there's not a whole lot of federal common law. States have have all sorts of common law. On the other hand, now right. in Georgia, and I think this is different from a number of states potentially, but in Georgia, the legislature adopted the common law of England as the law of Georgia. So the background law of Georgia is the English common law as it existed on May 14th, 1776, mm. um, based on an act of the legislature in the, in the 1780s. Um, and we have said that the legislature adopting the common law of England as it existed at a particular date cut off the court's authority to to do common law judging, which essentially mm. is letting the law evolve based on what we think good rules are. And it froze the common law in place as it existed at that time. Mm. Um, I, I do think a lot of ways that we think about sort of how the judiciary fits into our system of government and and what good judging is does stem a lot from the federal system. You know, there's a lot of a lot of rhetoric about unelected judges not substituting their will for the elected branches. Well, that doesn't map very well onto lots of state courts because lots of states elect their judges. 
Mm. Um, but it's important to remember what you're electing judges to do. You're not electing – and in Georgia, the Supreme Court's elected. Right. Um, but you don't elect judges to represent the community. You don't elect judges to sort of substitute their wills for the General Assembly. You elect judges to apply the law fairly and impartially. Uh, the judicial oath in Georgia says, you know, to do equal justice to the poor and rich. Um, and that job inherently um, is not a is not a popular majoritarian kind of job. And so, um, when you get into common law judging, each state is a little bit different, but. The essence of the judicial role, whether it's at the state level or the federal level, is the same, to, to faithfully and impartially apply the law as it's written or as it can be discovered. And that's sort of the key difference with common law. But at the end of the day, at least in Georgia, our job in, in common law judging is not what do I think the best rule is. It's, it's a history question. What was the common law as it existed in 1776? Got it. And that that constrains a judge's judgment in a way that I think is healthy. Got it. I have one more originalism-related question, Justice Peterson. You know, there's an ongoing debate right now uh, kind of in the academic community uh, between originalism, uh, original public meaning, and a, a new theory that's uh, come about uh, called uh, common good originalism. I was wondering if you've been following that or if you have any uh, thoughts you might be willing to, to share with our listeners. So I, I have been following it. Um, I'm not sure how many people actually really are pushing some form of common good originalism. And I, and I must confess that I don't really fully understand what it is. Because if originalism is, is just the simple idea that a word in a legal document means what it meant the day the document was written and that the meaning doesn't evolve over time, um, th there's not really a whole lot of... Uh, a whole lot of room for alternatives that still get to call themselves originalism. So it, I, I will, I will simply leave it at, I have no idea what it is. Got it. Got it. Well, I have one final question for you, Justice Peterson. It's a question that we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme court justice living or dead, who would it be? And what would you talk about? That's a hard one, but given that uh, we're presently going through the NFL draft, I think my answer has to be I would talk with Byron White about football. Excellent. Wizard White. It's an excellent, exactly. uh, excellent choice. Well, Justice Peterson, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate it, and we'd love to have you back again in the future. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, Zach, it is time for trivia. All right, let's do it. Well, Ted Cruz winning his case got me thinking about how many ways he's been at the court, so to speak. He was a litigant here. He's previously been an advocate, and he was a law clerk before that. So today's trivia is all about Congress members who were SCOTUS clerks. This is interesting, GC. I'm, uh, I'm ready to do trivia today. Let's get going. Oh, all right, that's the first, Zach. <laughs> you know... Don't expect lightning to strike twice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll start you off with an easy one. Who did Senator Cruz clerk for? 
Oh, I think he clerked for Chief Justice Rehnquist. Exactly right. All right. Now, two other Republican members of Congress clerked at the Supreme Court. Who are they and who did they clerk for? So I know Senator Mike Lee clerked for Justice Samuel Alito. Correct. And I believe Josh Hawley, uh, Senator Hawley from Missouri, also clerked at the court. And I think he clerked for the Chief Justice. Both correct. Uh, And actually, Mike Lee, Senator Lee, clerked for Alito twice. He had previously been one of Alito's clerks on the Third Circuit. And a bonus fun fact about Justice Alito, he has hired many clerks to the Supreme Court who previously served as his clerks on the Third Circuit, more than any other justice who previously served as a judge. Oh, very interesting. I'll throw one back at you, GC. All right, Uh, Zach. Who did Mike Lee's brother, uh, who is Justice Tom Lee on the Utah Supreme Court, who did he clerk for him? The U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, wow, Zach. I did did not expect this one. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to guess... Justice Thomas. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a great guess. (laughs) Great guess, GC. On your game today. Wonderful. All right. Number three. Only one Democratic member of Congress has been a SCOTUS clerk. Who is that and who did this person clerk for? Ooh, this is a little bit tougher. So I actually, I think it was Richard Blumenthal. He's the senator from Connecticut. Uh, I remember this because I was reading he was actually, he's had a very interesting career. He's classmates with Bill and Hillary Clinton at Yale Law School, and he's done some other things as well. But I can't remember uh, who he clerked for. That's right. It is Richard Blumenthal, and he clerked for Justice Harry Blackman. Oh, very interesting. All right. Of those four senators, one of them met his wife while clerking at the Supreme Court. Which one? Who did his wife clerk for? And what does she do now? So it was Josh Hawley. Uh, His wife, Erin, is actually a very respected litigator who is currently, I believe, working for ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, litigating religious liberty cases. And I'm not sure who she clerked for, uh, but I will assume I'll I'll take a, a guess and go with the chief justice as well. Hit it out of the park, Zach. Absolutely right. They both met while clerking for the chief. Great. Excellent. Well done. All right. Last question. And it's, this is a bit of a bonus question. I won't hold it against you if you don't get it correct, because it doesn't really have to do with Congress. But here goes. Someone very close to President Biden, someone he probably sees every day, is a former Supreme Court clerk. But you probably wouldn't know it because this person has on many occasions now gotten his boss into very obvious and very avoidable legal trouble. Mm, that is... Very interesting. The person that comes to mind would be the White House counsel. Um, I don't know if that is correct. So I actually don't know. I don't know. Well, let me take that back. I will guess the White House counsel, uh, and uh, you tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, You are incorrect. It is actually Ronald Klain, Biden's chief of staff. Klain clerked for Byron White, uh, and despite that excellent experience, he has gotten his boss in some legal trouble by tweeting unwisely. For example, when he retweeted someone who called the OSHA vaccine mandate the ultimate workaround, that tweet was cited in the Fifth Circuit opinion blocking it and in Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion in the decision that ultimately struck it down. Oh, very interesting. Well, in my defense, GC, 
I think uh, Dana Remus, who's the White House counsel, double-checked me, but I think she also uh, clerked on the Supreme Court as well. Oh, interesting. Well, I'm going to give you full marks today, Zach. I will take it. You know, like I said, don't expect lightning to strike twice. So I'll take it when I can get it here. (laughs) Well, very interesting trivia today, GC. And that's all we have for today. So thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.